Hey, what's up, y'all? It's Will with Schedule Fly. So I'm in the car right now. I'm driving back from Raleigh, North Carolina to Charlotte, North Carolina, where I live. Just had a phenomenal interview this morning with Sean Fowler, who owns Mandolin. Uh, we are very proud at Schedule Fly to serve people like Sean. He's just a great guy, phenomenal guy, humble kind, thoughtful, generous with his time, cares very deeply about his craft, his community, uh, grew up uh, going to the building he's in now at Mandolin was a pharmacy. And back in the day, you know, when they had the lunch counters at pharmacies, he used to go there after school, he and his buddies, and he, you know, found his way after college, out to Jackson Hole, went to culinary school in Denver at the Culinary Institute of America, back to Jackson Hole, to New York, and then back to Raleigh. And uh, we talked all about, you know, what he did in those places and uh, who he learned from and what he learned out west and what he learned in New York. And, and he brought all that back to North Carolina. And when he came back, he started working at Farrington House, which is a AAA five diamond place in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. And he was there for a while, and he's just learned from some amazing people. When he took all that he learned, he decided to start his own place. So he and his wife opened Manlin eight years ago. We talked about his business plan. We talked about um, what he thought it would be like and what it is like being an owner. We talked about changes that he made early on. Uh, a lot of it listening to his, uh, his bride, who has, as he said, a very uh, high EQ or you know emotional intelligence and paying attention to customers and their uh, how they were responding to what they were doing. So they made some big changes early on, which he talked about. Uh, he owns a farm north of Raleigh that has 50 chickens laying eggs all the time, and uh, they're just getting uh, all kinds of vegetables and uh, greens from his farm. We talked about that and just. And then getting other, you know, meat from local providers. So um, he's really into sustainable practices. And gosh, just a great dude. Really interesting conversation. An intelligent guy, a thoughtful guy, inquisitive guy. I had a great time learning from him, and I know you will too. And as I said, we're uh, we're just so blessed and thankful at Schedule Fly to be able to serve people like Sean and his team. They're, they're doing some great stuff at Mandolin and we're proud of them and we're, we're thankful to have their, them as a customer and we're very thankful to have the opportunity to share the story. Enjoy. We're live now. We're going, we're going to keep, we're going to keep talking about this because I want to, because I'm very curious your thoughts on some of this stuff. So, Hey, what's up everybody? It's Will at Schedule Fly here. I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina today. Uh, once again, uh, Raleigh's a great city for independent restaurants, and I'm with Sean Fowler. We're at Mandolin, his restaurant here. Kick-ass place. Um, I'll throw some pictures up on Instagram. Old building, uh, great charm, great design in here. Just really chill, cool-looking place. Uh, and this is um, – did I uh, – was this a pharmacy? That, that, that's correct, So yeah. you, you grew up here. I did, I did. And uh, – and this was a pharmacy, and you would come like I did as a kid and sit up at the counter and get Cokes or That's cherry right. Cokes or whatever. Golly, I remember those days. I yeah. miss those days. You don't have that anymore. I, anyway. I, I wouldn't even begin to tell you where to find a lunch counter, like a pharmacy lunch counter where you can sit down and get a 
get a limeade and a grilled cheese or yes. something like that. They're kind of gone bad. by the wayside. I know. Um, yeah, this it used to be a place called Johnson's Pharmacy. Okay. It was owned and operated by the pharmacist's name was Troy Johnson. And uh, we're right down the street from uh, Daniels Middle School. So a lot of people who have lived in this neighborhood over the past, yeah, I don't know, 40, 40 or so years have fond memories of getting out of school and walking up to Johnson's Pharmacy and sitting down and, you know, grabbing a magazine and a, you know, a box of jujubes and, oh, and uh, you know, grabbing a, grabbing a grilled cheese and a limeade or a fountain Coke. And, and, uh, so a lot of people kind of have that nostalgic I was memory say, of, this, I'm just of like this spot. Dripping with nostalgia. That's exactly what I did growing up. I, yep. I actually miss that. Like, I don't know. I'm surprised. It's almost like you wonder if that might start coming back. seems like some things from the, it's funny. My kids, we talk about this. My kids, uh, they're, um, 15, 12 and 10. And, uh, well, the older two, they're watching stranger things. They watch the gold. They're like obsessed with the eighties. Like all these, and, and all my other friends are too. Like the eighties is like a big thing. Now my son, he literally always tells me my 12 year old, he's like, I wish I lived in the eighties. Sounds awesome. I'm like it was awesome. It was freaking great. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. And then you're even getting all these remakes of Top Guns, getting yes. the reboot, and yeah, all these kind of you know '80s franchise movies are making the 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 the, the, the circle back around for the younger kids. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you ever think about that when you opened this place? Like doing? I mean, I mean, I guess the there's a reason they don't exist anymore. Yeah, not well, the pharmacy part, but just the. Right. Well, I mean, I like the location because it is, I mean, it's an older established neighborhood. A lot of people, you know, lived here or in the, you know, in this neighborhood for multiple generations. Yeah. So there's definitely kind of a history here, which I liked. And there was, I I knew that there was kind of a nostalgic feel for this, this building. And it it had been a revolving door of, of a variety of different restaurants and even some other, I think, retail concepts since Johnson's Pharmacy. Yeah. But I think people always wanted to see it kind of come back and be restored to its uh, former glory in some some capacity. And it just, nothing had ever stuck. So people, I mean, I think people were really craving they wanted it. something Nobody to come in right. here, something that, the you know, it kind of be a neighborhood spot that people kind of took some ownership of and, and kind of had a, had a good neighborhood restaurant or, or bar. Why do you think all these other places didn't, didn't make it? I and mean, um, did that, did that concern you when you were, I mean, certainly, I mean, I, I looked into each one and why they failed. I mean, okay, I did, did, I did so my, did, a lot of due did my due diligence. And yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I think sometimes it was kind of conceptually a little off. Sometimes it was just, you know, not the right operators. Uh, and I, I think the other issue was, was a parking situation where, mm. you know, that we do have ample parking, but I think the perception was there's not enough parking. Um, when we were negotiating the lease to, to, to come in here and put Mandel in here, uh, my landlord was also purchasing the building next door. So we gained a whole parking lot that was formally not accessible to the gotcha. tenants of this building. Okay. So we, we, we gained parking, which solved that problem. And then the other stuff I thought was kind of overstated as far as how serious it was. People were telling me that place is cursed and yeah. I, can, I can guarantee it wasn't, wasn't any juju going on. It was, it was that yeah, long. yeah. How long have you been open? Uh, coming up on eight years in November. Congrats. Congrats, yep. bro. That's you. great, man. Thank you. So, um, when you were doing that lease, 
did you um, was that the first time you had negotiated a lease um i'd sat down and kind of looked at some leases didn't get very far in the negotiation i mean i'd kind of been looking at at spaces for a couple of years okay until i landed here so i'd 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 sat down with some leases before but but never got very far in the process did you, was that a something you took very seriously and spent a lot of time on sure i mean i think i think most people will tell you location has a lot to do with uh, yeah. with success and failure of restaurants. It's not the only thing. I mean, I think people have proven that you can put a restaurant in the middle of nowhere, and if it's good enough, people are gonna yeah. gonna seek it out and find it and you know patronize it. So, I mean, I, I don't think that's the only the only variable that, that's uh, that decides. But I, I definitely think it's huge. But I mean, did you like the lease itself? Like, oh, sure, sure, yeah. Like, did you? Because um, I asked this question because there's. I've run into situations where people had a great thing going and they had a, you know, crappy lease or something happened. And then, you know, now well, we're going to have to close our doors or we're moving or whatever. It's happened in Raleigh recently to a couple of places. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unfortunate, but I think, uh, I mean, I also, I mean, I had a lawyer who yeah. went over it with a fine tooth comb and I, you know, I think, you know, I think, uh, as my, my dad's told me, you know, an expensive lawyer can save you a lot of money in the long run. So yeah. paying a, paying a little bit for somebody who knows what they're doing to make sure you're covering yourself and getting a fair deal. I think that's important. Yeah. And I, you know, and I was, I was never in a position to where I wasn't willing to kind of step away to like, I, I didn't get that emotionally attached to the, the that's spot a big part before, of it. before we you signed can, it. You I can mean, do that. People can do that. Yeah. It's like, it's like buying a house. I mean, you shouldn't fall in love with it till you, till you own it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that's good. That's good advice. Did you, um, so you, you grew up here and then you, did you go, did you move away? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up here, went to, went to high school, uh, locally. And then I went, went away to college. I went to school up in Virginia at Washington Elite University oh, yeah. Yeah. in Lexington. Great school. Uh, and then after I graduated there, I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I, I thought I was, I was a history major. Um, so was I. No way. <laughs> yeah. so, I, I had the same like, what, what am I going to do? <laughs> and, 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 you know, all my, all my buddies were going to law school and yep. were going to work on wall street and none of that resonated with me at all. Yeah. So, uh, I moved out West and played around in Jackson hole for a number of years and skier. Uh, yeah. Skiing, yeah. skiing and fishing. And, um, so I kind of did the reverse retirement and, you know, went and played when I was still young and nimble and, yeah. and uh, had some, had some energy. And, uh, so had, had some good times out there and always, I, I was, I was working in restaurants from the time I was like 15, okay. uh, you know, through college, I waited tables in college for spending money and then moved out to Jackson was working in restaurants out there. So I, I was always kind of around restaurants It you know, I liked it. Uh, but mm-hmm. I don't ever think I, I, I thought of it as a viable career path yeah. until, uh, you know, after a few years in Jackson, I was like, you know, I can't afford to buy a home here. I need to start thinking about some kind of career paths. And what I, what really drew me in was the, uh, the food aspect. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a chef by trade. You yeah. know, I, I own a restaurant, I'm a business owner, but, uh, but you know, I, I like the creativity. I was always, you know, artistically inclined and kind of draw to drawn to yeah. creative pursuits. And, uh-huh. uh, what I started to discover when I was kind of, you know, just playing around in the kitchen on my own was that there was a lot of, a lot of creativity that went on in the kitchen. So I decided to go to, uh, go ahead and go to culinary school. Uh, so I went down to Denver and went to Johnson and Wales yeah. in Denver and was living in Boulder. So I didn't, I didn't want to get too far away from the mountains so I could still, still play and get my, get my weekends yeah. uh, up in summit County and, 
and uh, up in the Rockies. So uh, when was this? That would have been. Uh, I graduated W and L in '99, so that would have been about O uh, two, O three. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think I graduated Johnson Wales in O four, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Out there. So you were in Boulder working. Yep, Boulder. I was. Working. Did you ever work for Dave Query? I did not. Do you know him? Big uh, I, Big Red F. They've got uh, Jax and uh, Zolo Centro. No, but I was big patrons of all their restaurants. We used to, we used to eat, eat at Jack's a lot and, yeah. and Zola. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. Um, I was, uh, I worked for a while at the, an Omni resort in Broomfield kind of between. Oh yeah. I've heard. Yeah. It's good, good golf course out there, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Broomfield between, uh, Boulder and, and Denver. Mm. And then I worked at the kitchen on Pearl street yeah. in Boulder, which is kind of blown up with Kimball. Isn't that Kimmel Mutt? Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was on the, the opening really? staff there. Um, kind of when they were, you know, the when did they as, open? That would have been, I want to say, oh, it was either Oh three or Oh four. Okay. My, my years kind of run together, but okay. it was somewhere in that time frame. That was their first one. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of brand new concept and they yeah. were kind of doing farm to table in an area that that didn't have a very long growing season and mm. you know there you know there's a lot of cattle being raised and kind of you know a fair amount of farms but not i didn't think it had the you know didn't have the vibrant agricultural yeah kind of culture that that north carolina or the southeast has but you know they were doing a lot of stuff with you know greenhouses and hydroponics and and stuff you know partnering with with local farms so i mean that that part you know resonated with me then and kind of, I think, laid the, laid the groundwork, planted the seeds for a lot of what, what we're doing here at Mandolin, too. Did you, um, before you went to the culinary school, CIA down there in Denver, had you, had you made your way into the kitchen at restaurants? You'd been working there for a while, or is it mostly front of house? Or? Yeah, I'd been, uh, I'd been doing some work at a small restaurant in Jackson called Nani's Genuine Pasta House. Ah. And it was owned by this uh, uh, Sicilian-slash-Calabrian lady, uh, named Carol Parker and her husband, she was, both parents were from Italy and her husband was this Wyoming cowboy. So it was like this odd couple. <laughs> That's out, awesome. Out, um, and, uh, and she oh, was, man. she was great, super passionate about her culture and her food. And, uh, but it was, you know, it's a little, you know, yeah, not small town, but you know, Jackson, Wyoming, not particularly yeah. big and still pretty, pretty Western, pretty, uh-huh. you know, R- rough around the edges and uh were they mixing had, up some pasta and bison or what? not really i mean it was all pretty it was very authentic classic Ita- authentic italian and, yeah. and the great thing was each month they had they had their classics menu and then they had a had a regional menu said so like half their menu would feature a different region of italy so i really learned a lot oh, about wow. italian food because yeah. One week you'd or one month you'd be in Emilia Romana, and then you know sometime in the summer you'd be in Sicily, and then that's you know, cool. You'd be in you know Veneto, you know one, one month. So you kind of got to eat your way around Italy, and I think yeah, you know, I learned a lot about the you know differences in yeah. regional Italian cuisine, which was you know fantastic, and still probably one of my favorite types of food to eat. Trying to lay off the pasta, hard not to love it. I know it's fantastic. Um, so. So you, um, okay, so you're out there in Boulder, and uh, then how long were you there before you we came were, back to North Carolina? I was, I was there, uh, I was in Boulder really just through school, so a couple of years. I did an externship for Johnson & Wales. I went back to Jackson 
for okay. a uh, for a winter and was working in a restaurant there. I hooked up with a, a chef there named Matt Sesich, who was running the uh, dining room at the Alpenhof Lodge in Teton Village, um, and he was you know totally eccentric, really kind of out there, larger than life personality, but but really you know great cook and a great teacher. Mm. Um, so he he would got an opportunity, got a job offer in upstate New York, a uh, couple who was building a property on Lake George had come out over the winter and eaten, uh, dined with us and got to know Matt. And they were like, we're opening up this new restaurant. It's going to be, you know, five star, five diamond, no expenses mm. spared, big, you know, big wedding, uh, facility. It's, it was this old, uh, old castle, uh, right on Lake George. Um, it's called the Inn at Earl West. Oh um, yeah. I think I've heard of that. But really beautiful property, and they've, they've done a good job. Um, so he was offered the opportunity to go out there and help open this and kind of recruited me to come back east with them. Uh, so I, I you know, moved back east and went up, went up to upstate New York uh, and, uh, and helped open this, this property uh, up, up in Lake George. I spent one winter uh, up in that area and decided I needed to come back south. So one winter and that <laughs> yeah, was it yeah it's it's brutal <laughs> it's a, a beautiful area you know beautiful mountainous drop right down the lake during the summer it was awesome did you, you ski know? there a uh, little bit a yeah. little bit um and uh you know during the you know, summer you know, beautiful lake yeah it's some water skiing and just a you know, great area lots of good hiking and just you know fun place to be but then once uh once those 40 to you know negative 40 wind chills set in in january february i was i was done <laughs> man i so, can't even imagine and, I, and i'd lived in some cold places before but it never <sighs> never like that it was it was, it was brutal so yeah, jackson's not exactly warm no no <laughs> not at all but but you know there was a little more to do a little yeah more of a kind of a culture out well, there especially so. if you like to ski did you ever yeah. go did you ever go to grand targhee uh sure yeah Whew, a lot went out there last one winter before that uh-huh luke and i went out there it's fun. last minute they were getting pounded we were like let's go it was incredible tons oh of snow oh my gosh we went up to uh i think it's like mary's nipple or yep, something like that yep. you hike up that little yeah we hiked up the last day last run uh-huh. we're like man if we're gonna do it and uh and it was like i it was like skiing down on a cloud or something yeah, that's so phenomenal. much powder it was incredible and it's funny because as the crow flies i think they're probably i don't know less than 10 i mean maybe like eight miles from jackson Hole mountain resort Maybe a little more than that, but not very not far. Not far, but it takes and, a, it's and, a long drive. And they get a lot more snow than Jackson just because it's oh, just on the it, other side of the range. So whenever those fronts would move in, they would dump a ton of snow on that side. Yeah. And then a lot of times by the time they got to, to the Jackson side, a lot of the moisture had been, been come out of the system. So, so, I mean, they were known for getting, you know, substantially more snow, even though they were only, you know, an inch apart on a map, you know. Well, you also don't have the – like the whole scene of like like the families from here or whatever they take their kids out for spring break and go to Jacksonville. They're not going to go to Grand Target. Sure, yeah, like, yeah, not going to happen. You got to yeah, really want gotta, to get you, out there. You got to go over the pass, which is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, they'll close that thing down. Yeah, and, you know, in a heartbeat. So yeah, it's it's tougher to get to. It's a smaller resort. There's not a lot of accommodations over there, and I mean there are, but it's not. You know, it's no frills. Not mm-hmm. you know, no, not no, no big hotels. No, no stuff. Uh, but yeah, it's a great spot, and they got a good bluegrass festival out there. And I saw in a lot of summer, posters about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that cool, sounds awesome. Cool spot. Well, okay, I was just curious, man. Yeah, we, no have, <laughs> we share interests. That that was funny because after college, I was uh, I was literally de- 
between all my buddies going and, and you know, getting these jobs, and I had offered this job offer at a bank, at Nations Bank. Mm-hmm. This was in 96. I was three years ahead of you. Or I was going to go out to Park City and be a bartender and a ski instructor. And like that was, and I chickened out on that because I was like, eh, I don't want to be the dude that, you know, the only guy that could, you know, couldn't go get a real job or whatever. Right. Boy, that was a mistake. I mean, things worked <laughs> out well. I'm thankful, but I didn't last at that bank. But like a year, I was like, corporate America sucks. And sure. I got into more of the entrepreneurial stuff. But um, so then you came back here um, and from New York, you're one, one winter there. You came back down here. And where'd you go from there? When I, when I moved back to, uh, to North Carolina, I was, uh, I, I basically, I was kind of looking around at restaurants. There's probably, a, there was a short list. There's maybe like three places that I was like, I want to work at one of these. And so the, the all fir- around here or yeah, yeah. Triangle area. Yeah, so, okay. so I mean, frankly, really Chapel Hill, uh, Chapel Hill and Durham. So for folks then, listening, if you don't know, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill was a triangle. Right. Heard right. of those places. And then, uh, so, so I think the first place I went into and dropped off a resume was Farrington house. Okay. Um, which is, you know, five star, five diamond, Relay and Chateau. Yeah. Wonderful property. Great, re- uh, great reputation. I think been around for, I don't know, since uh, I think the restaurant's been around since early eighties. Yeah. Um, and one of their early chefs there, I mean, a lot of the chefs there, you would recognize their names, Karen and Ken Barker. Um, and then, uh, Edna Lewis, uh, who was kind of one of the chefs that I would like really admired and kind of had devoured all our cookbooks, uh, African-American Southern chef grew up mm. in Virginia, just yeah. great story, wonderful recipes. Uh, and just, you know, really, I, you know, I, I really liked her, her cooking as well as the way she wrote, liked her cookbooks. They kind of told a story It told about a, a history of, of her and her family and her yeah. relatives as much as it did about, about the food, which I, which I thought was great. Um, so she had been a guest chef out there for about a year, um, during which time Walter Royal, who's now the executive chef over at the Angus Barn, had worked under her. So it was kind of, it had been this training ground for mm. a lot of Good chefs grief. had, had kind of come through there. Um, so I went in there and dropped off my resume to the uh, chef at the time, Graham Fox, and, and uh, got, got a job on the spot. So I started cooking on the line over there in the house. And uh, we were doing, you know, pretty pretty high-end, uh, you know, pretty refined type of cuisine. I'd say, you know, roughly French, but certainly kind of European tasting menus, lots of lots of components on the plate, smaller portions, which was what I had been doing largely up in New York. So it was kind of a good, good transition. Um, and then I was at Farrington for about seven years. Um, I took over their kind of banquets catering uh, operation over there. They had a big barn where they were doing, you know, 70, 80 weddings a year. Goodness. Um, so I kind of, I took over that, that side of the things and learned, learned kind of larger scale food production, um, you know, event food service, which was great. It was good, good exercise. Not, not what I wanted to do long-term, but it was, uh, taught me a lot about organization and time management. Just, you know, you know, you know taught me how to make money too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how did, okay, good. So yeah. you, at, at what point did you start to realize you wanted to have your own place? Or did you know that early and just need, knew it needed to be the right time? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I was working towards that from, from culinary school. I okay. mean, that was always, that was always the goal. Um, you know, and I, I, I knew I needed 
more kitchen experience. I needed to, I needed to do more and experience more before I was ready. Yeah. Um, but then after, after I'd been at Farrington for a while, we were, you know, I felt like I was, you know, you're, you're never, I mean, it's kind of one of those things. You're never ready to right. have in a restaurant, but it's like you, having a yeah, kid. Yeah. yeah. But you, you don't, you, you, know, you don't know until you, know, you just do it. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, I started, I was, I was planning it for years and writing menus and writing a business plan. And then just kind of on a whim started, looking at properties and kind of checking, you know, just seeing what was going around. And it was real, I mean, it was a really a, a great time to be coming into Raleigh because I mean, while Raleigh now has this, you know, this, I mean, I'd say almost national recognition for what's going on in the culinary scene here. Absolutely. Um, at that time there, there wasn't a ton, yeah. you know, going on here. And I, d- I definitely think that, uh, Chapel Hill and Durham got a lot more respect and kind of, you know, they were given a lot more clout as far as, you know, from, you know, food people uh, yeah. were, were looking at, were looking at Chapel and Durham a lot more than they were Raleigh. Raleigh was, you know, I think it you know, is traditionally a lot more meat and potatoes, uh-huh. just kind of, you know, simple, not, you know, no bells and whistles. Uh, you know, this area's, I mean, this town's been, you know, very tough on fine dining. Like, mm. you know, if, you know, if you're charging, you know, more than 30, $40 a plate, unless you're a steakhouse. Yeah. You know, it's been tough. I mean, Second Empire is pretty much the only fine dining restaurant I can think of with longevity yeah. uh, around here. Okay. Um, so, you know, so we were you know, coming in, it was right after the recession. So, you know, there's good, you know, people were anxious to, to, to sign leases and, and get people in the spaces. So, I mean, I think we got a, got a pretty good, pretty, pretty good uh, uh, situation w- with regards to that. And, and, you know, I think some people were a little bit, you know, gun shy. Not everybody was j- jumping into the market. So I mean, we I think we hit the hit the ground at a at a good time through yeah. through no, you know, it wasn't a lot of planning on my part. It was just, good just timing. Good. Yeah, it's things like, were, in, it's like in two thousand eleven. Yeah, two thousand eleven. Okay, so things were on the uptick. We were kind of you know things were coming back. You, you timed back it to great, normal. Man. Yeah, and uh, there was a lot of space, and things were. I mean, people were starting to. to to build and develop some, some more. So, uh, Raleigh, you know, downtown was kind of starting to come back a little bit. Um, yeah. but I mean, even with, since, since we've been open, I mean, last eight years, I mean, downtown's almost unrecognizable from what it was eight, 10 years ago. So, oh, absolutely. I mean, this whole area, we're not in downtown proper. We're in Hayes Barton, which is a little neighborhood kind of, you know, kind of adjacent to, to downtown. So we're, we're right, kind of right off that path, but, but, uh, but a good spot and just a lot of, a lot of cool stuff going on. So we, you know, hit the market at the right time. And now, I mean, you know, this, I feel like the city's and, you know, still, still blowing up in the, in the process of blowing up. So Absolutely. Pro- probably about where, you know, where Charlotte was maybe, I don't know, I'd say maybe 20 years ago or so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, about the time Panthers came to town and mm-hmm. downtown really started kind of coming coming back to life and i guess you know charlotte always had a little more robust of a downtown with the banking culture but i think that yeah it used to be dead after five but like you said 20 years ago but you all have um i mean your your culinary scene particularly with independent restaurants is just it's amazing yeah no i really is i like i I mean yeah i mean i i you know and i think when when we opened you know there weren't a ton of people doing the type of stuff that we were doing. You know, I think we were, you know, we were definitely kind of on the front end. Of T- tell us about mandolin. What was the, what was the idea? What was the plan? Sure, what did you think? Sure. Was, you know? I mean, you know, I, I, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of my experience was more kind of classical French, a yeah. lot of, a lot of fine dining, 
you know, so, so as far as like technique, I'd, I'd seen a lot of that. Um, I, I liked French food. I like, you know, I like kind of the European influence, but, but what was kind of really, you know, drew me as far as from like a, a passion standpoint was the food I grew up with, which was Southern, you know, which was, you know, sweet potatoes and collard mm. greens and, you know, fried chicken and biscuits and yeast rolls and, you know, mm. the stuff that my grandmothers were cooking. I had two Southern grandmothers. So, you know, growing up around here, you know, cornbread, all the barbecue, all the, all that stuff. Uh-huh. And I think one of the light bulb moments I'd, I'd mentioned Edna Lewis, who was, you know, visionary, you know, you know, phenomenal Southern, Southern chef. And, uh, you know, the other, uh, chef that kind of like sent off a light bulb was, I was, uh, I was in a, in a, uh, at a bookstore, picked up a copy of, uh, Frank Stitt's, uh, uh, cookbook and, and what I saw in there was somebody who was already bringing kind of, you know, French old world sensibilities to Southern ingredients. So he had, he had trained in, in Europe, worked in France and he was from Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. And so he, you know, he was, he was cooking with field peas and, 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 you know, you know, red snapper and, and, you know, doing pimento cheese and, yeah. and things like this, but doing them with a certain, you know, certain level of refinement and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, attention to detail and was using, you know, using, you know, you know French sauces on, on fish with, yeah. with, with, you know, Southern ingredients and, yep. and things like that. So, um, that, that, that was kind of like what I always think I, I wanted to do, but I didn't, I didn't, I don't really know how to do it. I didn't know what it looked like, but then I saw, you know, I picked up this cookbook, couldn't put it down. I was like, well, this, I mean, this is what I want to do. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we do. I mean, our, you know, I think, I think our, our menu is becoming much more ingredient driven. The older I've gotten just because I've realized what a, what a, uh, asset we have in the agricultural community. Just what, it, I mean, what a phenomenal place this is to be cooking just because of our access to ingredients, yeah. whether it's, you know, year round. Yeah. I mean, some of the best pork in the country, mm. you know, best poultry, best yep. seafood, the fish we're getting from the coast is beautiful um you know all of the the produce we get is you know you know you know as as good as it gets i mean you you go to eat in places like chicago and new york and and the and the restaurants are phenomenal and the technique and what they're doing is definitely on like the cutting edge but our access to ingredients is is better than i'd say any of those places with the exception of maybe california i mean there's spots you know southern central california that have same access, longer growing seasons, but, but, you know, as far as, you know, our access to great ingredients, I don't, you know, I think you'd have a tough time finding a, yeah, another, like, another spot in the country that has, has that. So I think we've kind of started playing into that more, um, you know, so my, my food, I, I call it contemporary Southern. Mm. It's, it's definitely rooted in, you know, fresh local ingredients, whatever's coming up in the field in Johnson County or, you know, you know, Orange County or, or Chatham County, where, wherever. Uh, I mean, that's what's on our menu, whatever fish, you know, the guys are catching in Southport or off Beaufort. I mean, that's what we're, mm. that's what we got on the menu. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's really, it's constantly changing. And then I guess about, it's probably about eight years ago. Um, no, a little more, I guess, six years ago, a couple of years after we opened, my wife had the idea that we need to start a, our own garden. Um, so we, we uh, the house I grew up in, it's out in North Raleigh, so we kind of started kind of a humble, you know, vegetable garden out there, and and it's really, 
I mean, it's exploded. Now I now I call it a farm without feeling oh, that's like cool. like overstating it. We you know we're getting you know most of our chicken eggs from there. We got about fifty chickens out there. We got a couple greenhouses. We're growing you know microgreens, lettuces. We got hydroponics. We're growing you know tomato, squash, zucchini, <sighs> tons of herbs. Um, so we're micro. What are microgreens? Uh, just basically like a a smaller version of herbs. Okay. So I mean, basically you're, you're you know you're growing basil to you know you know, about an inch, two inches high to where it's just getting those true basil leaves. And then, so you're cutting them young. They have a more intense flavor. Oh, And then gotcha. they just look, okay. they look good on a plate. So, I mean, it's just like a, it's like a baby herb. You got essentially 50 chickens out there uh, laying yeah. eggs, running yeah. around laying Are they, are they like, do they graze around? Yeah. Or? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, uh, I mean, we keep them contained just because of predators, but they're free range. I mean, we yeah. move them around yeah. the pasture and stuff. So, um, so that, that's kind of the direction we've moved in here is really, you know, that's, I, I feel like that's kind of like a logical next step for some chefs is, is, I mean, you know, you understand the cooking, you understand the food and then the desires to get the best ingredients possible. And, you know, while we have access to a lot of the best ingredients, I also thought in some cases we could probably grow something that's as good or better and then guarantee freshness. Well, you're, you're controlling the process. Exactly. Yeah. Having, you know, you know, and also we, I mean, I think we realized that I could grow stuff that people around here weren't growing okay. and have access to those things like, uh, like Espelette peppers, which is a, it's a red pepper. They grow in the South of France and Northern Spain, which people don't grow around people here don't grow that and here. it's super yeah. expensive to buy the dried pepper. People use it almost like paprika or, okay. or, you know, red, red pepper flake. Yeah. So, I mean, we have like 50 of those planted out there and, uh, you know, grow those dehydrate them and, mm. you know, use the, you know, use that, that dried pepper flake throughout the year. Um, you know, other things like, you know, sunchokes, Jerusalem artichokes, not a lot of people are growing those and that's, you know, it's a phenomenal kind of, fall winter ingredient yeah um so we you know grow a bunch of those i mean there's all all, all sorts of that and, and i also think that kind of ties us back to just you know southern culture southern cooking is a lot of you know you you enjoy the bounty of summer and then you preserve and you pickle and you yeah dehydrate and yeah. dry it out and then use it you know, enjoy it the rest of the year that's right so, um so i mean that's kind of been you know our most recent i don't you know kind of our our challenge or what we're kind of looking to do is is grow as much as we can so are you gonna you have enough space out there to yeah i mean each year it's getting a little bigger uh we just put in another greenhouse uh beginning of this year and we're finishing up uh we're putting in the the next projects in the aquaponics system where we're gonna actually have fish fertilizing the uh, uh lettuces and herbs so we have a we have a hydroponic system now which is you know basically these plants are being grown only in water, no soil. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're adding fertilizer, uh, to that water to feed the plants. Um, and then the next, next step is, uh, getting tilapia and putting those in a tank and actually using the fish waste to fertilize the plants. Um, wow. And, and then using the fish to cook too. Yeah, I think it, it we will eventually, that's not kind of, that's not the ultimate goal, but, okay. but, but we will wind up serving the fish. Tilapia is not my favorite fish. Why do you, why do you use fish waste? Um, to- just because it's, it's a, it is a more sustainable loop. 
Uh, yeah. They're rather than, I mean, it saves costs too. I mean, you're getting free fertilizer from fish right. as opposed to buying fertilizer, yeah. which okay. is, you know, manufactured. It's not, you know, yeah. it's, you know, it's organic. It's not bad, but it's, you know, using the fish. I mean, it's pretty much an all natural system. Um, and then, and then, I mean, the idea is you do, you do eat the fish once they get mature enough and then yeah. replenish them. So it's kind of, kind of a closed sustainable, uh, system. Eat the whole fish. Sure. Yeah. 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 I, I was at uh locals, uh, with Eric Montagni. Oh yeah. 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 He was talking about, great guy. yeah, he was getting into charcuterie, fish charcuterie uh-huh. and dry age. And then I had, it was great. Um, but he was talking about using the whole fish and I was like, well, kind of jokingly, I was like, what do you, what do you do with the skins? Like make them dog treats. He's like, funny. You shouldn't ask. And he Local, gave me a back. Michael's is doing it. Yeah. Dogs freaking loved them too. Yeah. I was mean, it, was it trigger fish? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly what yeah. it is. <laughs> he actually told me, I'm curious. I want to ask you about this because like this was a couple of weeks ago. And they had just passed legislation or maybe it was getting ready to go into effect. Uh, we talked about it on the podcast. I don't remember, but it was basically they were getting rid of gill nets and Pamlico sound. Okay. I'm not, I'm probably not as familiar okay. with it as Eric would be. I've just, or those locals. That guys. was a yeah. big deal. Yeah, uh, yeah. and, uh, yeah, because they were saying that it was, you know, killing off the, the, um, species there, but do you get fish from, that's what I was wondering is. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably our primary yeah. source is locals. Okay. So, I mean, obviously the, the, the closer you can get to a one hook yeah. line and a fish yeah. catching method, the better it is for the, you know, the yeah. environment better yep. it is for the fish, you know, the, 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 you know, the bigger the net, the bigger the mechanism for pulling in those fish, the more bycatch, the more kind yeah. of unintended yep. catch you get out of that. And the more, you know, frankly, the more stuff you're killing, yeah. uh, you know, unnecessarily in a lot of, a lot of cases. So yeah, I mean, right, and those guys, those guys are pretty good about their sourcing. You know, they're, they'll, they'll tell you where, where, it yeah, came they from, were all over that, who yeah. caught it, how, how it was caught. Um, and you know, are pretty good as far as sustainability. And I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's another thing that I think's become increasingly important. And I think, I think most of the people in the, or this food community kind of embrace that as just sustainable source and knowing yeah. where your stuff comes from and you know, how it was, how it was handled, how it was made, how it was grown, how it was caught. And, uh, just making sure that you're, you're setting yourself up to have all this stuff 20, 30 years down the road. Yeah, I mean, then, unless you're myopic, you should be thinking that way because yep. it's only going to benefit you if, yep. if the right sustainable practices are and in I, place. You know, I'm already, I'm, I'm, you know, concerned that like you know my daughter might not ever t- taste a wild caught salmon you know if things kind of continue yeah with their trajectory they're at right now so but you know it's never never too late to kind of make a good impact because i know i think uh i think it was right before the second world war fish populations were lower than they are today and the thing that brought them back was just four years of no fishing because basically all the nobody was out fishing because everyone was at war. Everybody's at war. And I'm not yeah. pro- proposing that we go to war to reestablish <laughs> healthy fish population. But what I, you know, so it, it, these things can kind of heal themselves and kind of get back to, yeah. to a, you know, to a healthy, healthy state if we let them. But yeah. that's the key. You know, we got to back off and kind of do things more thoughtfully and more intentionally than I think what we have been. So, yeah. 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 It's a really interesting thing. Cause you know, the, um, he was, we were talking about, you know, the, the gill net thing and 
he said there's also they don't know if it's all because of that or if it's because runoff uh in the rivers that that um you know run into the pamlico sound from the pig farms and stuff like that and the waste that gets in that water and all it's really a complicated it's a it's just no easy answer no, but everybody's got the same objective which is good yeah i think so the consumer I, does the business owner does all you know everybody involved does it only helps everybody if and i think i think i think awareness is really kind of where it starts yeah. and that's i mean I, you know like i you know, I realize that people are coming into my restaurant to enjoy a meal, to, to eat with friends, family, celebrate something, you know, and, and they don't necessarily want to be preached to about what they should be doing or yeah. what they should be eating. But, we, you know, I think we do it in a kind of a non-threatening, very kind of organic way just in what we serve on our menu. Right. You know, like I don't, we don't serve salmon, you know, and, and some people, you know, eight years ago, that was like, that was almost revolutionary in Raleigh that you would open a restaurant and not serve salmon not serve because there's such a demand for it. People are like, how can you, you know, don't you get people ask for salmon? I was like, there are, there are other species of fish that are just as good. We got plenty of stuff coming from, you know, our coast that we don't have to ship across the country or ship from, you know, got you know, fish farms down in Chile or wh- wherever. So, I mean, yeah. we have access to so much good fish that is not overfished. That's being sustainably caught um, that, you know, why, why not try some of this other stuff? And even when we, you know, when we first started, you know, we were selling, you know, grunt and porgy and, and mm-hmm. trigger fish yeah. and sheep's head, uh, you know, lionfish, all this stuff that frankly people hadn't heard of. Yeah. And, uh, we put it on the menu and have our servers just sell it. And after a while, I think people, they just developed a trust and like, Hey, if they're cooking it. It's going to be good. Right. Um, so we, you know, kind of get yeah. people out of their comfort zone, so they're not just going out looking for, you know, sea bass and and uh, you know and and you know cod and and uh, and salmon and tuna, you know, and we, you know, we serve serve tuna too, not year round, not all the time, but um, but I think people had gotten, you know, they just get in this habit of eating the same same things or the same species, and that's mm-hmm. all they're, and people, you know. And people say, well, you know, that's what the demand's for. But I, I kind of disagree. If you give people other options, I even look at, like, what the, you know, what the supply chain looks like now, what, what locals is selling at all these farmers' markets. I mean, they're selling stuff that you probably couldn't have given away 10 years ago, to be honest. So, I, th- I mean, even that, just, like, diversifying people's tastes. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, we, you know we, put, we, we put mullet on the menu. And well, you know. You get the, people come in and we're like, wrinkle their nose and be like, try it. If you don't like it, I'll buy you something else. The thing about it is, too, Sean, is like, everybody else has salmon. Then, you know, they come here to get salmon. They go somewhere else. That right. doesn't maybe make them quite as... Uh, likely to be a regular or a loyal customer if you're you know introducing them to new things they're like wow that was really freaking good and next time they come you have something different and then all of a sudden it's like ah i can get salmon anywhere <laughs> you right know? right i can only get this other stuff over here so um well that's fascinating about the uh the farm so you guys gonna eventually have your own what meats do you serve um let's see we we serve we usually have a couple of steaks on the menu. We're using Joyce Farms, which is kind of headquartered at Winston-Salem area, but they've got farms kind of all over uh, Piedmont of uh, 
North Carolina, and then I think they've got some down in Georgia as well. Okay. Um, so most of our poultry is coming from their operations as well as our our meat. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, our beef. Um, so we're, we're serving a naked beef product, which is a grass-fed heritage Aberdeen. So it's a, it's a kind of a heritage mm. uh, black Angus breed. So we always have a big bone-in ribeye on the menu. Ooh. We cook everything over hickory, so we got a wood-fired grill. Mm. And our, you know, I would still say, uh, I know it's a bold claim, but our 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 ribeyes is about as good of a steak as you're going to find anywhere. Oh shit, man, um, that's my favorite. So Literally, it's my favorite food. Good, a <laughs> yeah, right, right. I mean, it's, it's awesome. I it's had it good. last night. I did. I did. I, but you can you can learn so much on YouTube now. I don't know how to freaking cook, but I. <laughs> I was like, I heard about reverse searing. Oh, yeah, so I yeah. went on and watched some videos. I was like, I'm going to try this. It's freaking awesome. How'd it work? Great. Good. Yeah, that's Oh, my awesome. God. It was fantastic. It was in there like 225 for like an hour, and then Low I temp, stuck them on my cast iron skillet yeah. real fast, and then let them sit for 10 minutes. Yeah. It doesn't stress like the ex- meat. It keeps a lot more moisture. Oh, right it was like an explosion of juice. When I, and a, I cooked it like rare to medium rare. Yeah, like, I mean, I... It's it's the same. I mean, it's really the same kind of science behind sous vide cooking, yeah. which is cooking at a constant low temperature, right? And then finishing it, you get the sear on it. Yeah. So you're keeping all the moisture and all the juices in it, <sighs> man. And and it cooks slower, more consistently, more even temperature throughout, and then you sear it at the end. So same thing, but yeah, that's cool. You, um, and so you've got a wood wood burning grill wood grill cook on all hickory oh. um, so everything we got coming off the grill is being cooked over over wood um so currently i'm gonna say what uh, meats we've we've just got a uh we got a pork chop so mm. usually I have a pork chop on there uh, a couple steaks um usually have a couple different types of seafood i think right now uh what do we serve we're serving a snapper um and then we've got a tuna mm. uh, tuna steak on the menu um and then uh, then we always have a vegetarian option of some sort, depending on what's what's available. Right now, we're doing actually a grilled watermelon vegetarian dish. So. Grilled watermelon. Yeah, it's awesome. It's good. Really? Yeah, I've good, eaten a hell of a lot of watermelon in my life. Get a good marinade on it. Yeah. And uh, throw mm. it on the grill. And then we're serving it with a uh, caponata and then like a cucumber salad. So it's got it's, it's got a really savory flavor to it. I mean, it's sweet, but it's not yeah. it's not dessert. I mean, it's it's it tastes like a meal. That's awesome. Yeah, man. Ooh, God. I'm like pa- Pavlovian <laughs> dog reaction right now. You're talking to me. I grew up here too. I love, you know, sort of the classic Southern foods, but the more contemporary ways of preparation now that you're seeing more and more, which y'all are doing is just mm, really freaking good. Yeah. Thanks, man. Oh my gosh. Um, I need to come back sometime and just hang and eat a, yeah, eat, eat a ribeye, man. I'd love, love to have you. I'd, 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 I'd love oh, to cook your ribeye. Oh, for sure. Uh, why wood fire grill? What's, what's your, um, affinity for that? Uh, I mean, flavor, I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it? it's, it's, it's a, it's another ingredient. And, you know, I think, I think people in, certainly in North Carolina know the value of, you know, wood fire on a yeah. pig. So, yeah. uh, you know, it translates well to a lot of other stuff and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not for everything. Not everything we do is wood fired. I think yeah. some people you know, probably enjoy that smokiness a little more than others, but I, you know, I almost think that, you know, I almost think that grilling on gas, I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's a waste. I mean, I'll do it, but it's like, I feel like the, the, one of the reasons for grilling on open flame is to get that wood flavor, get mm-hmm. the smoke. Um, and it's, just, you know, it's like, it's, it's just another, another layer. Um, 
you know, like I was telling you about these ribeyes we have, it's a really good piece of meat. So we're, we're starting with phenomenal beef, but then, I mean, all we do to it is salt and pepper and then throw it on that hickory grill mm. and get a really good hard, you know, char sear on it. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's as good of a steak as you're going to have. And there's, I mean, we're not manipulating it at all. It's not like, it's not like we're putting a hollandaise over it. Or, yeah. You know, no, you don't need to when you got, with, you know, yeah. doing anything crazy. It's just, you know, it's, it's just beef, salt, pepper, and then wood smoke. <sighs> um, so yeah, you know, we, we definitely, you know, we smoke a fair amount of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I, I just lo- I love that wood, wood grill flavor. And, you know, and again, not everything, not everything's coming off there. So I'd say probably about half of our entrees are, you know, being seared or roasted or, or braised or some other preparation. And then probably about half are coming off that, that wood grill. And I, I just love that. You know, I think hickory is great because it's not, it's not polarizing. It's not too, it's not like mesquite yeah. or something that's like super dominant, but it's, it's enough that you get a good flavor out of it. Um, you know, I feel like Oak's probably a little bit, a little bit more mild, mm-hmm. um, whereas Hickory, you actually get, get a little more of the, the, the flavor. It's a little more substantial. Um, so yeah, and I, you know, I've, I've always kind of looked at that as a, as like a, you know, not just a cooking method, but another ingredient. Cause you are getting, you're getting flavor out of it. It's not just, you know, it's not just for looks. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, you know, I was wondering, I'm, 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 I'm in the market for a new grill and I was looking at these Traeger grills, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, are I've, you familiar with I, I know what they are. I've never cooked they're, on one, so but I, I know they're I know they're fire cool. And, yeah. yeah, okay. Um, well, okay. So you've been you've been doing this for eight years now. Um, what's you know you have an idea of what it's going to be like to own a restaurant, but like you said, you're never really ready. You can't do it until you do it. What what was different than what you expected? man uh everything <laughs> you know like i think we had a good plan going in uh but i mean even i mean we ch- you know like that was the other thing i i had an idea of what i wanted to do what i thought our guests wanted um i had an idea of what i thought you know our our staff and what our team like what they needed to be and then you get into it and you know you've got to you've got to adjust and adapt and and uh kind of reassess uh, you know, so there were a lot of things that we started out with that we either had to scrap or things that we, you know, didn't have that we had to add. I mean, like, what's an example? Example: uh, when we opened, we had white tablecloths. Okay. Um, I think our hostesses and hosts were a little bit more formally dressed. Okay. Um, and then I realized, you know, we were getting people in here, and the word the word on the street was that is a really nice restaurant we're probably only only going to eat there on special occasions yeah that was that was like that was which is not what you wanted the impression we had was high-end fine dining expensive special occasion and i was like we can't we can't subsist on people coming in here once or twice a year yeah we need to be more approachable so um even our service style was probably a little more formal i'd been coming from a fine dining background so I like the steps of like kind of a European style service where it's very, you know, it's methodical mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, probably s- you know, service staffs, maybe a little more formal, a little more reserved, not as kind of familiar. Um, and then, you know, pretty quickly within the first few months, uh, and I'm lucky that my wife was uh, working with me in the restaurant early on because she's got a pretty good kind of 
emotional IQ, like good at reading people and kind of mm-hmm. feeling situations. And she was like, I think people think we're like really expensive. And she was kind of picking up on this. So I was like, well, what do we do? Well, first of all, let's lose the white tablecloth. So that'll kind of cure that perception. We kind of told, you know, our, our you know, front door staff hosts and hostesses, um, you know, not, you know, I'm not looking jeans and flip flops, but let's, you know, I don't want you guys consistently dress better than the people walking in the front door right. to make them feel like they're coming in to yeah. somewhere underdressed. Sure. Um, and then even with the service style, I kind of took the, took the leash off the, the servers a little bit. And I was like, you know, as long as we're hitting the points of service and anticipating the guest needs before they have a chance to ask for things and, and, you know, all of, all of the, the points are in place. I mean, be yourself. I mean, if the person wants to talk about, you know, their dog or, you know, where to go get a, you know, cocktail after dinner or, you know, what's, what concerts are coming up or things like that. I mean, be yourself. And, and, you know, and I I figured out that's what people, I mean, we're in the South. People want hospitality. They want, they want people to be, you know, it's like, it's like bringing people into your, your home. home. Yep. You want to be warm and gracious and kind and, and, you know, you want, you know, you want to, you know, you know, you know, bring them hot food when they're ready for it. You bring them, you know, make sure their water glass is always full, doing all of those things. But then also, you know, being a person and being relatable. Um, How was that different? Like what, what were they doing? Like if somebody want to talk about concerts or their well, dog, no, like I, I think, I think they, they were, they were able to do that, but I think our training was probably a little more rigorous on, okay. on mechanics okay. and on, you know, a little more, I don't want to say robotic, but almost, you know, you know, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. You know, my pleasure. Certainly, you know, like and all, you know, good manners, but I think it was probably, we had probably drilled it into them to be a little more robotic and okay. a little less organic, natural. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and I think when people don't have a lot of fine dining service, I think you kind of have to focus on the mechanics first and then, and then let the personality come out, you know, right. instead yeah. of vice versa. I mean, you, you know, you know, you can be, you know, the most, you know, warm, inviting person in the world. But if you, you know, forget somebody's cocktails, then that's, you know, that's not going to work. So, right. so, so I, you know, it's, it's a balance. And I think that's kind of what we, what we developed. And then, you know, the other things we did not have a bar menu, um, pretty much same, same menu throughout the restaurant. My wife day one was like, we need to have a burger. We need to have a burger. And then, you know, so she would get like regulars who would come in and she'd be like, tell Sean, we need to have a burger. So then every week I'd have like five or six people come. <laughs> and be like, why, don't, why don't you guys have a burger on the bar menu? We come in every, you know, we come in every week if you guys had a burger and had a bar menu. So eventually I, I kind of caved on that too. And I was like, Hey, everybody wants a burger. Let's, you know, let's do a bar menu. So we got, you know, charcuterie, pork sliders, uh, nice. you know, got a, got a great burger, phenomenal. Um, you know, I'd say one, probably one of the better burgers around, uh, you know, same, uh, same beef. Yes. Yeah, so we're using, yes, using a good grass fed beef. And then what we do is we, we grind it. So it's 75%, uh, 75%, uh, Chuck. And then we take, uh, uh, about a quarter of that grind we're taking our we, we do a house cured house smoked bacon mm. so we grind that in there oh, so God. it's um so it's actually and and 
that's one of the challenges. Not everybody loves cooking a burger on a wood-fired grill. Mm. Um, you get the flavor, but I think what people lose is the moisture and the fat content because all, instead of cooking on a flat top where you're pretty much self-basting, um, you throw it on a grill, a lot of that fat finds its way through the grates into the fire. But by putting all that extra pork fat in there, it's almost it's got this internal basting. So you get it out, it's still super moist, mm. juicy, um, and then you get the wood-fired flavor, too. So we kind of figured out a way um, around the challenges. A lot of people, you know, and plenty of people grill burgers, but I think the conventional wisdom within the culinary community is that the better burgers are the flat-top burgers yeah. because, you know, you get that. It's basically cooking in that grease, cooking in that fat, keeping, yeah. keeping it moist. And so by grinding, you know, that bacon into the burger, you've got that fat built in. So even though it's it's – you know, you're losing a little bit into the grill. It's, it's basting from the inside constantly. So, um, so it's a wood grilled, uh, burger, 75% beef, uh, 25%, uh, house made bacon ground in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we change up toppings right now. We kind of have our, I guess our homage to the big Mac. We got a, you know, kind of a secret sauce, Russian dressing on there. Really good cheddar cheese. Um, we'll get brioche buns from La Farm bakery. It's just, I mean, it's a killer burger. It's really good. Just kind of classic. But we, we mix it up, and we always kind of have some different toppings. So the bar menu, and it, and it did, you know, it got people in here more often. They felt like they could come in after work, kind of casual, come in, grab a few drinks, grab a burger. And then we've actually, we've added these bar plates, too, where it's kind of mix and match. You get to choose three items. So, you know, you come in and do like a, you know, piece of fish, salad, collard greens for 15 bucks. But nice. you can mix and match because, you know, we have probably, I don't know, maybe six proteins to choose from and maybe, you know, a dozen sides or vegetable salads. So you can come in and get, you know, potatoes and a steak and a Love salad. It. So uh, just kind of quick, easy, more accessible. So like all of those things were not in my, uh, uh, you know, original vision. Yeah. And then they kind of, I listened to what our guests were telling us and, and, you know, and took it seriously and was like, Hey, this, this restaurant's not about me and what I want. It's about, you know, it's about giving these guests, an experience that they want. And if, you know, and if all of them are clamoring for a burger, my wife included, then who am I to say, <laughs> you know, I don't want a burger on the menu. You know? Yeah. I mean, cause now they're those people that were asking for that probably come more. And oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. What, are you dinner only? Uh, dinner seven nights and then we do brunch on the weekend. So Saturday, Sunday we do br brunch Okay, and brunch is huge. Uh, our Sunday brunch is probably our, our busiest meal period. Really? Down. And it's, and it's good because we get a little bit different clientele because Price point's a little lower. It's a little more approachable. So, you know, I mean, we get a lot of the kind of after-church crowd, but we get a lot of families. Yeah. You know, we get college kids in, yeah. uh, which is, you know, and we get we get some of that in for dinner, but I think just price point being a little lower, it's more casual, just kind of high-energy, faster-paced. So we get we get a lot more, you know, it's kind of a, a different, different look in here on Sunday brunch, which is great. I love it. That's awesome. So you've got um, very high-quality local ingredients you've got a phenomenal atmosphere um in this really unique old building uh which is designed i mean it's really cool how y'all have taken something that's old and you've you know these old brick floors and you see the bones and stuff but then you've 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 matched that with a really fresh modern looking design i, I really like this a lot well, thank um, you so you got these two things going for you and then you've got your your staff which we've talked about a little bit, but they are, um, I feel that the staff 
perhaps more and more these days is such a key part of the experience. Um, and my little theory uh, that I think about every now and then, Sean, is like the big chains, McDonald's, and a lot of these, you know, like it'll start there and it'll trickle into maybe even some sit-down places. But technology is kind of taking that over. It's removing people from the equation. Like I think in five or ten years you'll probably have like one or two people in a McDonald's and the burger burgers are being flipped by, you know, like everything can kind of be automated, the order on the screen. And in that context, when you need that, or when you want that great, like you want the efficiency, I just want to get in, I want a burger and I want it quickly and I want to get out or whatever, like perfect. That's one end of the barbell. It's like everything's moving in one direction, the big ones. And then on the other end of that barbell balancing it is the more, locally owned independent neighborhood community oriented um places that are using local ingredients have something unique about their the atmosphere the design and have people that are engaging people in conversation and educating those people whether it's as you said not in your face but people want to ask okay well tell me about your i see that you get local like t-, and then all of a sudden they're having this conversation about your your farm or something and that engages people and it makes them more interested in what you're doing um i feel like that's something that's i think that's happening it's happening slowly but it seems to be happening i find myself and our family like we really you know like i got three kids we'll get chick-fil-a chick-fil-a is great too i mean their service model is incredible but and we'll get McDonald's some too. But then there's, you know, like that's just when we don't want any interaction. We just want something quick. But then like when we want to go somewhere and just relax, we're never going to I don't know, like Chili's or something like that. Right. You know, we're going to go to a probably an independently owned place. It's sure. got something unique about it and a story to tell and something interesting. And, you know, where I know that the money we spend there is going to pay staff and that are, you know, that are local. The profits are going to go to an owner who's local. There's going to be proceeds that are going to go back into the community. Everything's local and, and it makes it more interesting to me. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think at, at the core, I mean, we're, we're in a, you know, it's a, it's a human relationships business. I mean, this yeah. is, I mean, it's, it's people relating with each other, being, yeah. you know, connecting, um, you know, it's hospitality. I think that's kind of one thing that might've slipped a little bit in the past years, but I, I yeah. feel like it's coming back. I agree. Cause, cause you know, I think in our day to day lives, we are, you know, for better, or for worse, a lot of like the technology is kind of keeping us increasingly detached, mm-hmm. you know, kind of separated yes. in our own little kind of bubbles. And, uh, and, and I think there is this kind of swing back of the pendulum where people want to be in these, you know, social settings where they can, connect with people. And I think what we're doing in a restaurant, we're not, you know, certainly we are connecting with our guests, you know, our staff is connecting with our guests, but then we're also connecting with our, you know, with our vendors, yeah. we're connecting with the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are all things I don't think you get as much from, you know, the corporate from the chains from, and that's, that's a very blanket statement. I think there's a lot of those doing a lot of good stuff in their communities and, and, and their guests feel very at home. But I mean, I think, you know, restaurants in general, I think there's, you know, there is this kind of, you know, feels this need for community. Yeah. You know, people, you know, we, you know, we, I know who I'm buying our cheese from, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like I know, I know who I'm buying my fish from, you know, like, yeah. or, you know, and, and we can, 
we can tell that story to the guests and the, you know, and the guests want to know about that too. Well, so. they want to be, I think they want to be part of the story more. Sure, that's, absolutely. that's, that's, that's that connection. We are, that's my thing. I think the technology is good. I mean, I'm wearing a software business. Technology is good to a point, but the more it, um, the more it disconnects you, the, or the more domains where you become disconnected in your life through technology, we're people. At least we we are now. I mean, maybe we'll be robots one day. I don't know. But you know, we just, it's just like a fundamental core need to have that connection with other people in that conversation. I really think it's. I really do. I believe this passionately, and I think that this is the only place you can go now. For many people, it's the only place you can go where you can have a really diverse socioeconomic, racial, racially diverse community of people come together that eat here and that work here and engage in conversation and talk to people that where else would you do that? Like there's nowhere else you would do that. These the only days. thing I would say is maybe religious institutions like houses of worship. But I mean, you know, they're you, so segregated they, though. A lot of times, yeah, I, mean, partu- I mean, they really are. This is like the one place where your server may be an immigrant and you where and true. you know, you may be sitting next to a group of people that you strike up a conversation with that, you know, are in a different uh, economic class, whatever it is. Like we tend to, run and and work and live in these little you know and then then we're on our devices and we're just looking at other people that are just like and all the time and then you come in here and it's just refreshing and it's different and it gives you the opportunity to go you know like everybody's fighting on twitter all the time but then you come and you're like people aren't mad all the time they're actually most people are fine this is a small group of people that are angry and they type stuff on a screen and get mad but then you go be around these other people like all these people here don't look like me or, you know, there's all these kinds of different people and everybody seems to be happy and enjoying being around each other. Yeah. And I I think it's, it's also, I think it's, it's a lot easier to recognize the humanity in another person when you're sitting across. Amen. Yes, sir. Sharing, sharing, sharing food, breaking bread. Yes. Then it, you know, like doing it from the behind a computer screen or on a phone. It's so easy to be detached and judgmental and and harsh and critical but you know, you know, I think so much has been accomplished just sitting around a table sharing sharing a meal. You know, and, and, and from the beginning of time till hopefully till till the, you know, till the end end, end of the time. End yeah. of time. But you know, you know, sitting around a table, there's something kind of universal. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know, it connects people. It brings them together, and it kind of wipes away any you know you know any prejudices or any any kind of preconceived notions or or you know differences or kind of left by the wayside and and I think you know I think if more people spent more time sitting across the table face to face it yeah I think we'd probably all be a lot better off for it yeah people live in these damn echo chambers a lot of times now and it's very easy to strip a person or a group of people of their humanity right yeah like you said you can't very hard to do that when you're sitting across the table from somebody. Sure. Very hard. Even even if even if y'all come from totally totally different, different perspectives, and you have very yes, very little you in can't common. Can't help but just you, I mean, begin you're, to. You're gonna find something even if it's that you know you really like the beer you're both drinking. <laughs> you know, even if there's it's, something if there, it's very you know yep. very kind of minimal. You know, there, there's something that's gonna kind of connect connect. Hundred percent. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I really. It is why I got to tell you, man, it's why I'm so thankful. We're so thankful. All of us are at, at, to be able to 
it's schedule fly to serve you know independent restaurants because i just think it's like a it's not it wasn't i guess you know like i haven't really fully understood this until recently but seeing what's going on in our uh culture it's really starting to occur to me more and more that i've always liked independent restaurants i've always liked local businesses all of us have it's you know really the um type of business we just admire and respect and we've always said like you know we kind of serve people that you know we think run restaurants the same way that we might if we owned one right people that we would like to hang out with outside of you know them being a customer but i'm really starting to understand the value of independent restaurants more and more in bringing people together like that and uh how binding they can be for their community what you're doing yeah. here this what was the neighbor the neighborhood uh, here? it's called hayes barton yeah hayes barton i mean you become you know you're eight years in you're becoming an, an institution that the people of hayes barton can rely on and every year you're here adds that value that this is a place they can come and feel at home yeah absolutely so important yeah and i mean even you know looking at the uh the restaurant community in raleigh particular uh, and even even Durham and Chapel Hill. I mean, like I, I I consider myself to be very fortunate to be a part of that community because of you know the types of leaders, the types of yeah. you know just just generally good people. Uh, Agree. The type of people who you know who kind of like minded share a lot of the same values and are really you know frankly I mean leaders in their community. Um, you know, not, not, you know, not even talking about myself, but talking about my colleagues, mm-hmm. um, in, in the area, just all the good stuff that they do, you know, they're, they're extremely busy, you know, have a lot on their plates, a lot of, you know, a lot, all the stress and the, you know, the problems that are associated with running small businesses, but then, you know, still take the time to be involved in their communities and be active members and, you know, showing up for, you know, you know you know, town council meetings and, yeah. and, and being involved with nonprofit and charities and, and all of that stuff. So it's, it's, it's I, I feel, I feel fortunate to do what I do because I am surrounded by, uh, you know, and, and you know, on, on one level, yeah, we're, we're, we're competitors in, in, in a marketplace, yeah. but I think, you know, in, in the larger picture, I don't, you know, I don't think many of us look at, at it like that. I don't it's think kinda, you do. It's kind of, you know, like, you, you know, if one of us is winning, we're all winning, you know, and it's, and, and we're all kind of, you know, in, in, in it for the same, same, same reasons. Well, the, uh, it's, it's not a zero sum game. The no, pie keeps no. expanding and you guys, y'all, um, y'all inspire each other. You collaborate with each other. You learn from each other and you're just, you're elevating the culinary scene collectively as a group in Raleigh, which frankly is a big selling point for Raleigh as a city sure. for families and businesses to want to be here so it's a round and round it goes you know it's rising tides lifting all boats and uh that's a great mentality i admire that very much i've talked to every restaurant owner i know here about that and everybody feels very much the same i've literally not come across anybody that didn't feel exactly like you do and i think that's very refreshing and it's it's a uh I don't, you know, good karma, whatever it is, man, you guys are, you know, when you think about it that way and think not just about your bottom line, but about the success and the longevity of the culinary scene and the restaurant scene here and what y'all do in the community, you you know, the profits and financial success, you know, as long as you're running your business well, become sort of the byproduct, a natural byproduct of that. Sure. Sure. Love it, man. Um, 
I've had an hour of your time, and I know you're a busy guy. Anything else you want to wrap about before we uh, finish up? N- no, not particularly. I think we've we've hit some good stuff. I appreciate you taking the time oh, to, man. to to drive over here in this nasty weather today. So yeah, Dorian looks like the outer edges of Dorian coming in here. Yeah, huh? just starting to see the first first raindrop. So well, we're uh, we um, we got all the folks along the coast eastern well not just eastern north carolina goodness the whole east coast south carolina upper georgia florida wherever this is going next we got them in our thoughts and prayers and hope this thing takes a hard right soon amen gets out of here had enough of this last year right yeah absolutely yeah we we need a we need a break we need a year off i think <laughs> yeah, no kidding all right man this has been fun i really appreciate it and uh y'all are awesome man we're, we're proud to serve you we appreciate it and i appreciate the time uh very much thank you thank you for what you do and thanks yeah, for uh, com- coming to visit with me absolutely all right y'all that's a wrap we'll have more soon see you <laughs>